Hi, my name's Peter Blanche. Welcome to our Reach Australia podcast. It's great that you're with us and you've pressed play on one of our resources from the National Conference. You're about to listen to Paul Harrington. He, it, he gave some delightful insights into team ministry. There are some delights and joys in team ministry. There are some hard struggles as well. He's going to dig deep theologically and practically to help us in team ministry. And this is part one. Can I just say what a great joy it is to be with you uh, here and to be part of this REACH Australia conference. REACH have been guys that have partners, partnered with us in Adelaide since about 2001 when we uh, planted our first church and they've walked with us along the way and they've been genuine partners in the gospel and great, great friends and uh, so I'm enormously thankful to them uh, for their support, thankful that they run a conference like this Thankful that they sow into our hearts and into our lives. Uh, so, yeah, it is a great joy to be here. Uh, it's a room full of leaders, so I'd love to pray for us as we turn to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your wonderful kindness to us. Uh, Father, you know we sit here as leaders in various stages, forms, uh, ministries. And Father, we ask that in your kindness you might keep working in our minds and hearts to shape us like your son and make us really useful in your service. Uh, Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us will have listened to the rise and the fall of Mars Hill, a podcast that paints the way in which Mars Hill Church and its founding pastor and preacher Mark Driscoll sort of crashed and burned. Now, I want to say to you... I. I have listened to it, but not all of it. I just found it so heartbreaking uh, just to see uh, the way in which something that seemed to start so well and have such impact just went off the rails. It just felt like I was involved in a train wreck for every episode. And maybe you felt the same way. It was wonderfully produced. And uh, every time it started off with the same patter, the same band would play, the music, quite powerful, the same editorial introduction. And there was always a soundbite from one of Mark Driscoll's sermons uh, that really agitated me, to be quite honest. And you know the one I'm talking about if you've heard it, where he yells out at the top of his voice, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And of course, ironically, it's the question that the podcast was trying to answer. I mean, who did Mark Driscoll think he was? Um, how did he get in this situation where things came so badly off the rails? I've got two evening sessions and I am speaking to a room full of leaders. And I want us to think about that question. Who do you think you are? I'm not going to yell it at you, right? <laughs> but I do want you to think about it. Who are we in Christian leadership? You know, what does that look like? How do we view ourselves? How do we understand it? And you know, often I think, uh, for me, the insight to that question has come either in the unguarded moments or in the contested moments, where I've gained insight into my own self-understanding of leadership. Let me uh, be self-disclosing. A couple of years ago, Sue and I had the great privilege of going out of the UK and we spent a few days in Edinburgh and a pastor had invited me to come and sit with him and his elders 
they were keen. They said, Edinburgh, similar to Adelaide, we'd love to plant some churches. Uh, we know you've planted some churches. Can you come talk to us about what you've done, how you've gone about it? So we did. At the end of that time, uh, Sue and I were sitting down for lunch with this pastor, uh, just sort of debriefing. And he, he started off, he said, it has been really great to have you with us. Right? I like where this conversation was going. You know, I felt like we were in a good space, feeling good. Then he went on, he said, you've been able to plant 10 churches in Adelaide, and you're so... And then he paused, and I could see him you know, doing the eye flick, you know, as he thought about the word he'd first thought of, thought about its inappropriateness, and was trying to replace it with another word. Okay? <laughs> so he paused, and then he said this. He said, you've been able to plant 10 churches in Adelaide, and you are so normal. That's the word he chose, normal. And immediately I knew what he was thinking. You're so average, right? <laughs> and then he said, if a normal, remember, read average, pastor like you can plant 10 churches in Adelaide, then it's quite likely that I, I think in brackets, an above average pastor, <laughs> could too. And I, you know, at that point, I was caught a bit, you know, I felt like saying, no, you've misunderstood. I'm Australian. We're all self-deprecating, you know? <laughs> I mean, who likes to be thought of as average? Social psychologists have uh, they did various investigations, but they recently did a survey in the United States. And uh, what they discovered was that 93% of drivers in the United States thought they were above average <laughs> when it came to their skills and their safety. It's called illusory superiority. Now, let me say, in my experience, it doesn't just apply to drivers, but also to Christian leaders as well. And part of it is that we're under pressure, more pressure than ever before, to perform as leaders, uh, to do better as leaders, to lift our game as leaders. To, and we're under pressure, in a sense, to compare ourselves with other leaders and see what they're doing and how we're going by comparison with them. And of course, one of the unfortunate things with that, even at a conference like this, is that we can tend to, you know, compare and contrast to compete. And even I think for a number of us here, you'll probably come away from a conference like this having a floating sense of failure, of underachievement. Not the intention of what we're doing, but a struggle. Friends, tonight and tomorrow night, we have two sessions on team leadership. Now, there's lots of things that I could have chosen to speak about. I could have tried to find, you know, 10 tips, you know, that I might have picked up over 30 years. You know, one, of th one every three years, possibly could have done that, you know. Uh, but in the end, I decided that what we would do is focus on one, I think, essential characteristic or conviction that leaders need to have, and it's humility. What I want to do tonight is to explore what humility is and actually to say that if you're humble as a leader, you will be very ambitious. You must be ambitious. Humility and ambition, they go together. Then tomorrow night, what I'm going to do is think about how hu humility shapes 
our behaviour and our convictions. And I want to do that by looking at Philippians 1 and 2 together. Okay? So let me kick on. What, what is humility? Uh, now, let me say, as this conference drew close, I began to think this was a really dumb topic to speak on. I mean, how do you humbly speak on humility? You know, like, it just feels a bit weird, really. But uh, let me say, the Apostle Paul, he doesn't shy away from it. Uh, I didn't know Andrew was going to be speaking on the passage he was this morning. But did you pick it up? Acts chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Paul says to the uh, Ephesian elders, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And we're told that we should aspire to humility. Philippians 2 verse 3, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. But how do you measure humility? Uh, how, how do you do that? I think it's often easy to confuse humility uh, with personality. And so we tend to uh, look at those who are shy and quiet, uh, the ones who let everyone go through the door first together, the ones who over tea went around and collected all the plates and put them in the bin. You know, they're the, the sort of humble people. But those who have bold and assertive personalities who have driven characteristics who are visionary groundbreaking types obviously they can't be humble but you and I both know that that is you know really skin deep and it's not the way the bible thinks about humility you see take me uh, I would be very happy and uh, never to lead anything quite honestly uh, that is, when I became a Christian, I figured I ought to because I had an obligation to. But I would have been happy never to leave it anything. So my struggle to be humble is to be prepared to step up and lead. You know, it's, it, often we do confuse those sort of behaviours when it comes to uh, thinking about humility. So what's at the heart of humility? Let me give you a definition. It's in the outline that you received. And I'm going to uh, road test it with Philippians 1 and 2. Here's the definition. Humility is to be so captivated by the gospel that you willingly sacrifice your own interests for the sake of others and for the glory of God. So captivated by the gospel that you willingly sacrifice your own interests for the sake of others and for the glory of God. So you want to say that humility begins with being captivated by the grace of of God in Christ. Now remember when Paul writes this letter, he is doing it tough. He's in prison in Rome. Uh, the uh, scholars say he could have been there for maybe up to five years. A church planting evangelist stuck in prison for five years. It's the ultimate lockdown. Uh, and he writes to a church that gets what it's like to suffer for the gospel. Uh, if you went to what, verse 30 of chapter 1, you're engaged, he says to the Philippian church, in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And you can read all about it in Acts 16. But here's the thing. The letter just pulsates with thanksgiving and joy that is fueled by the gospel. He's just so excited. So chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, 
He talks about the way Paul and the Philippians share or partner in God's grace together. When you get to chapter 2, he fills it out, pointing us to Jesus, verse 8. Christ Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, here is grace and humility defined and personified. Jesus chose to go to the cross. A gracious, self-giving sacrifice for sin. So the guilty rebels, you know, like Paul, like the Philippians, like me, like you, so that we could be forgiven and made citizens of heaven. I love the way John uh, Stott uh, talks about the cross in his commentary to the Galatians. He puts it like this. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated view of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we visited a place called Calvary. And it's there at the cross. We shrink to our true size. Uh, I got converted as an undergraduate at Adelaide University. And that is over 40 years ago now, uh, before so many of you were born. And can I say, it just turned my life completely upside down. Uh, when I'm in Adelaide now and I walk past that campus, I still normally get quite choked up 40 years later, just reflecting on the mercy and the grace of God, that undeserved kindness, that just flipped life on its head. Forgiveness, you know, <laughs> his love. But also the ramifications of it, the way in which it's just rolled out in all sorts of different ways. Uh, Sue and I are both first-generation Christians, and so we always felt like we were making it up as we went along a bit, you know, looking for the next step uh, to learn from friends, especially when it came to family. Last week, my daughter Kate was over. She's got three kids. Her eldest is Lily. She's seven. And she told us about a conversation she'd had with Lily. Uh, well, Lily had asked her, uh, how could she know she was a Christian, seven years old? And uh, Kate took her through those steps and said, look, well, you can pray to God and, uh, you know, you can actually talk to him about these things. And when she'd finished, Kate turned to her and said, Mum, why haven't you told me this before? You know? <laughs> and uh, Kate managed that very well and, uh, and left the room. Five minutes later, she came back in. And said to Lily, you know, I can lead you in praying that prayer if you'd like me to. And uh, Lily said, no, no, mum, I've already done it. <laughs> and off she went. Do you know, every day I've just got these reminders of how kind God has been to us through his gospel. You know, he's been at work in family lives, changing, bringing people to himself. Uh, the relationships Sue and I have is so different to what it would have been. The wonderful generosity of God. Can I ask you, do you have that overwhelming sense of how privileged you are that you're in the kingdom of God and in his family? I, now, hear what I'm saying. I don't mean do you have the joy 
of preaching the gospel and seeing other people become Christians. I'm asking whether you are just constantly gripped by the amazing kindness and mercy that God has shown you in his son. And do you celebrate it? Do you rejoice in it? Do you live in it? And can I ask us that? Because I know that there are so many vocational gospel workers in the room. Do you understand that you are the doubly privileged people? You know, some peop sometimes people say to me, oh, you know, you've given up quite a lot to uh, go into full-time ministry. Uh, friends, I've given up junk uh, to be uh, able to work at the coalface of the universe and share the gospel. Do you, do you have that enduring sense of the privileged position you have? in Christ. See, that, that is at the heart of who we are as Christian leaders. And don't get me wrong, you know, I have been in full-time gospel work for uh, quite a few years now, <laughs> over 30 years. Yeah, there have been difficult times, there have been challenges, there have been hard things. But you know, they've just forgotten in the wonder of God's grace and kindness. Friends, here is a truth that we always celebrate. Here is a joy that we always share. God's grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Humility starts with being grounded in this gospel of grace and never recovering from it. That's where we start. But I also want to say that humility drives ambition. In fact, humility must cause you as a believer to be ambitious. But you and I, we both, we all know stories of Christian leaders who've shipwrecked their ministries on the rocks of their ambition. So you'd feel nervous uh, when I say that. And what Paul does here in Philippians is he helpfully contrasts two sorts of ambitions. Right, firstly, there's a wrong ambition. Back in chapter 1 verse 17, uh, Paul says, some proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Then when you go over to uh, chapter 2, verse 3, the same word is used again. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. So what's going on? Back in chapter 1, verse 15, uh, we're told that some are preaching Christ from envy or rivalry. Now, we don't get stacks of detail on this one, but there are believers in Rome who are obviously preaching the right gospel from the wrong motives, in order to bring Paul the Apostle down or put themselves up in some way, and that's described as selfish ambition. And can I say it's an easy trap to fall into? Uh, and you do it unwittingly. You, you, here are the tells. When you find you constantly talk about my ministry or my church or my achievements or my leadership or my influence in my tribe, or when you gather with people and you talk about our you do it as a group, it feels better that way. Or you find yourself in a, a group talking about another group that's not your tribe and contrasting, and that's, it's really easy, isn't it, to speak in a way that pulls down others to make you feel better about the situation you're in. And there's that sort of thing going on here uh, with Paul the Apostle. And it's subtle. And there's pressure on us as leaders, and therefore it's easy to play this game. At conferences like this, not, not this conference I've been to, but I've been to conferences where 
the, the gospel workers play a game called Top That Pastor. Top That Pastor at morning turn lunch. Someone starts off with the story and the next pastor tops it. And it goes on like that, you know. Really easy to get into that sort of pattern. And when there's this focus on our leadership as pastors in different ways, you can get uh, in trouble. I remember when Sue came home one day and she talked about a conversation that she'd had uh, with a group of pastors' wives. And one of the wives spoke about the way in which their church was growing. And they said it was all because her husband was such a magnificent preacher and people were coming from a long way away to hear him preach and the church was growing. Now, understand, it's good that he had good gifts of preaching. But understand that there was a, a glorification, a lifting up of the pastor rather than the Lord Jesus in that process. How do we guard against that sort of selfish ambition which creeps in? How do we guard against it? Well, it's by having right ambition. And Philippians 2, we find Paul contrasting this selfish ambition with humility or right ambition. And what he does is he points us to Christ. Chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but here's the contrast in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. And here on to verse 5, he says, Have this mind, that is this heart conviction, this core of who you are, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In verse 7, he goes on and says, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you get it? It's reflexive. Jesus does it to himself. He humbles himself and embraces the cross. And then this cross shapes Paul's conviction or ambition. Uh, back in chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, It's my eager expectation and hope that I'll not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, the word honoured there is the Greek word megalanthesatai, uh, the word, you, you can probably pick it up. The Christ will be magnified. Now, Paul is saying, what I want to do is live in such a way that people will see a big Jesus and a little Paul. Big Jesus, little Paul. Tim Keller has written a helpful little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's on uh, 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. In it, he says, uh, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself, but thinking of myself less. But I actually think that's really hard. How do you do that? Think less of yourself. You know, like, do you adopt a mantra? I'll try it tomorrow. I'm going to go through the whole day saying, Paul Harrington, right? Think less about yourself. No, no, think of yourself less. Okay, Paul Harrington, think less of yourself. I go through, so I spend the whole day thinking more about myself, trying to think less of myself. You know, like, how do you do that? It's like, you know, I'm really hungry, so the object is think less about food, right? Oh, that's going to work, you know? So, but here's the thing, you know, sometimes I'll come home after a long day and I'll get home and I'll say to Sue, I've just got a splitting headache, right? And Sue will ask the perfect diagnostic question. 
did you eat lunch today? <laughs> I go, no, that's it. I forgot to eat lunch. That's why I got a headache, you know. And, but see, what's happened is I've been so preoccupied with what I'm doing, I forget to eat lunch. And uh, it causes that sort, of, that sort of problem. It's the same here. He's saying have this positive ambition to promote Jesus. And that occupies Paul's screen in such a way that it dominates his existence. And it's the ambition that needs to dominate every believer's screen and every Christian leader's screen. It was Thomas Chalmers, the 19th century Christian writer, uh, who expressed it like this. He said, it's the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. Magnifying Christ. That's the ambition we want to have. What I'm going to do just for a few minutes is finish by talking about the way I think that humility shapes some of the big building blocks in Christian leadership. The first is, I want to say that grace trumps purpose. There, um, there used to be a statement in business uh, that said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's a bit old now, but culture eats strategy for breakfast. For Christian leaders, can I say, grace eats purpose for breakfast? Or grace trumps purpose? But listen to what I'm not saying. Okay, that is, I'm not um, pushing aside the thought of thoughtful planning or pipeline thinking or pentagons or ecosystems or <laughs> any of those sort of things. Don't hear me being negative about any of that and I want to incorporate all those things when it comes to ministry uh, thinking. No question about it. But it isn't the main thing. We've got to keep remembering that. Sue and I had the opportunity to go to the States in the late 90s. And it was a time when church growth, church planting, seeker churches, purpose-driven churches, big, gaining traction everywhere. And let me say, as we wandered around, uh, we learned so much about how to strategically think about using resources for the glory of God. And it filled a gap in my own education and theological thinking. It was enormously helpful. But I came away with an increasing sense of uh, being unsettled. And here's why. I constantly heard what pastors and churches were going to do for God. And really heard them talking about what God had done for them in Christ. Or the connection between those two things. And it seems to me the Apostle Paul always leads with this, the grace of God to us in the gospel. Can I say, if you lead a team, this is your main job? And it's good to get feedback on whether you're doing it. You know, the, the people in your team, the staff or the elders or the member of church that you serve alongside, do you keep taking them back to the cross? Uh, would they say you're someone who keeps rejoicing in the salvation that is yours in Christ? Not just other people who become Christians, yeah, yeah, do that. But you, as someone who celebrates what God has done for you and your household, the people you know. One of the pastors I work with, a guy called Jeff Lynn, uh, he regularly gets his staff team to dedicate 
uh, a large section of a meeting to preparing and giving thanks for what God has been doing in and around uh, them in ministry and then spending a lot of time praying and giving thanks to God. And he does it deliberately because he wants to be the sort of person who leads his team in thinking about the grace of God in Christ. Friends, if you're a team leader, this is your big job. Beat the gospel drum. Do it constantly, loudly, personally. Second thing is this. Can I say that failure in ministry is always linked to wrong ambition? Always. In recent years, we've seen some really high-profile Christian leaders uh, who've crashed and burned. Uh, Driscoll and Highballs, Fletcher, Zacharias, Timus, Houston. Um, all people who are in large ministries and they are all very gifted. But can I say their failure was not because they were very gifted or because the ministry they were in was too big. It was because they had wrong ambition. So who do we as Christian leaders, who do we think we are? Well, if we are very gifted, it's wonderful God's giving you those gifts to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're average, like most of us, it's wonderful God's given you those gifts to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ and to do that in ministry. Who cares about your gifts? And actually, who cares about the size of your ministry or your church? The question is, is Jesus magnified? That's the question. And can I say, when Jesus is being lifted up by a ministry, we'll always rejoice? When you see big ministries that are flourishing and lots of people becoming Christian, do you give thanks that's happening? This is the first time I've been here and heard about what's happening in EV. I'm so thankful for this church. Yeah, isn't it a good thing? Celebrate it when you see God at work in that sort of way. Can I ask, do you ever find yourself uh, comparing your gifts or your abilities or your ministry with somebody else, either better or less. Can I just call it out for what it is? Uh, it's normally godless, self-serving indulgence. That's what it is. And it's unbecoming of Christian leaders. We do want to learn from each other so we can glorify God. Good thing, not, not to compare for other purposes. Let me also say, and I'll finish with this, right ambition must drive purpose. And that purpose will have an evangelistic gospel proclamation edge. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, we're told uh, Paul's uh, saying, if Christ is proclaimed, in that he rejoices. And we've already heard that he's been preaching to the palace guard, maybe up to 9,000 people, quite extraordinary. Uh, he's rejoicing because other believers have been encouraged to be more bold in sharing the gospel. And ironically, he's even pleased that uh, people who are trying to bring him down are preaching the gospel too. And he celebrates that. The grace of God will always generate this reflexive evangelistic purpose. It must lead to that and it must drive it. So I want to finish off by just telling you about a courageous church, an ambitious church, and one that's just closed down, right? The same church. 
outrageous, ambitious, just closed down. Uh, Twelve months ago, there was a church in Adelaide called the Hill Street Church, and the elders approached me to talk about uh, whether we could help them out. Church had been going for a number of years, uh, but they'd found that they were getting older, they were slowly declining in number, still a reasonably strong number of people. Uh, they had money in the bank, they weren't about to close. But here's the thing, they found that they weren't reaching people in their suburb and they desperately wanted to do it. So they asked if we could help them. Now, here's what's going through my head. I'm thinking mergers, repots, revitalizations. these really work and they're normally incredibly hard. I've had these conversations over the years and normally people are saying, can you please give us 30 or 40 people so we can keep going? But we don't necessarily want to change. And, and so we, but we kept talking. And these elders, they said, no, 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 we are willing to do what it takes to reach people in our suburb. We want you to tell us how, how we can do that. So we went away and we prepared a proposal. We came back and we said, we think the way this needs to work is that you need to close down your church and then join with a group from, from another one of our churches to meet in a neutral location to plant a new church. Now, get, get what we're asking them to do. Give up their building that they owned. It was very comfortable, but a little small. Uh, give up their name of their church. Give up their denominational association. And the elders had to be willing not to be elders anymore. And we explained all the reasons why we thought that was necessary to launch something healthy to reach new people. And uh, these elders, they said, no, we're convinced that that's exactly what we need to do. They said, we, we will go away and we will persuade our people uh, as best we're able to get on board with this. That church launched on the uh, 3rd of April this year, different to the one Cam was telling you about. And I was there. It was a very moving occasion. Uh, there were new people there. There were unbelievers who'd been invited along by friends. There was so many we wouldn't have fit into the old building. And the people from the Hill Street Church had now formed part of this new church you just couldn't get the smile off your face. <laughs> they were so excited. I mean, sure, it wasn't as comfortable. Absolute pain to set up a gymnasium. I tell you what, it's horrible. Many of you know that pain. <laughs> Nuisance to put up the signs. But such joy. Now, can I say those elders, they, they weren't world beaters. But I tell you what, they were courageous. And they are ambitious because they wanted to see the Lord Jesus magnified. They were quietly determined that that's what they would do. Well, my brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, you are fellow leaders among the people of God. Some of you are extraordinarily gifted. Most of you are probably average. And some of you are below average. <laughs> Statistically, I feel confident to say this. 
can I say we all share that same ambition. That ambition that Christ might be magnified. Big Jesus. Little us. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a wonderfully gracious God. That in your kindness you give us the extraordinary privilege of not only being in your family, uh, but also having the, the wonderful joy of being able to serve you by promoting the Lord Jesus and lifting him up. Father, we pray that that, uh, that vision will just occupy our screens, uh, that it will dominate our minds and our hearts, that it will keep calibrating our motivations, our desires for seeing the gospel go out. Uh, Father, we pray that you and your kindness will keep help us, keep helping us to celebrate and rejoice in this wonderful gospel, this wonderful privilege that we have. And to enthuse the people around us with the same joy uh, so that we might share the Lord Jesus with our nation that so des desperately needs to hear it. Father, go before us in your mercy and in your grace and in your loving kindness. Uh, please use us for your glory and honour. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We really hope you enjoyed this first part of Paul Harrington's insights into team ministry. If it's really piqued some of your interest in wanting to do team ministry better, then come along to our Reach Australia development program. It's a two-year program aimed to develop leaders to help them and their churches be more evangelistically urgent, to be more practically skilled, to see churches grow and multiply. And if you'd like to see that happen in your church or as a leader of a church, get involved with the Reach Australia development program. The details are on the Reach Australia website, reachaustralia.com.au.